All right, so I have a couple of things coming up today, exam today, right? Chapters uh, 3, 4 through 8 as one section, and then chapter 9. And then coming up tomorrow is a quiz. That's actually an in-class quiz, not an online one, so we'll be doing that. Uh, we'll be doing lecture on finishing up chapter 10, or the second part of chapter 10, the first part of class, and then doing the quiz before we go on to the labs for that, for that day. Quiz 3 will be up and available starting tomorrow. We'll cover chapters 4 through 8 and 9. And not available till Friday. It'll be available Thursday and Friday. On Monday, a bunch of stuff due, which includes the solar observations any you've gotten in the second uh, segment of the course. You can turn those in and I'll take a look at those on Monday and give them back to you on Tuesday. And then homework 4, which I gave out last time. And if you're doing the exam corrections, I'll need those back. And then the second iTunes quiz will actually be available the middle of the week next time, next week. Uh, we'll, hit, we'll hit enough pictures to be able to do it on the 11th of June, so I'll actually activate it on the 11th of June and put those questions up and it'll cover the pictures from May 31st, which was our end of our first exam, through the 11th of June, through that, through that days. And that'll be available for a couple days through the end of, through that, through that week, which will be like Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday you'll have to, have to do that one. Questions? Questions? No? Alrighty. Picture of the day for today then is M57. Uh, M57 is a catalog name for the Messier catalog of objects that looked a little bit fuzzy through small telescopes. So could be easily confused with comets. And this was item number 57 out of about 100 or so in that catalog. Now, of course, it wouldn't look like this through a small telescope. It would be a little tiny fuzzy patch. Wouldn't quite look like a star and might easily be confused with a comet that astronomers were searching for back in the early 18th century. Uh, what it really is is actually a, what we call a planetary nebula. A planetary nebula is a um, star or what's left over of a star after it's reached the end of its life. A star, in fact, a star much like the sun. So the sun will actually do something probably similar to this in about five billion years. And what's left over is the star has split up into two parts. The core of the star where the energy was being produced is still there. Very small bright object at the center. It's no longer producing energy. It's compacted down uh, from star size to about the size of the earth. So you've compacted all the material. Essentially, you've squished all the atoms as close together as they can possibly get. So the electrons are touching each other. So you can take something with the mass of the sun and squeeze it down to the size of the Earth if you just get rid of all that empty space in between the atoms. And that's called a white dwarf star that we'll be talking about in more detail in a couple of chapters. The outer layers of the star have gotten bigger and bigger and eventually have broken free from the rest of the star and they've ex they're expanding out into space. And that's what we actually see as the nebula portion here. These would have been, you know, 100,000 years ago would have been actually part of the star. Would have been a very large star. Eventually those outer layers just become detached from the star and expand out into space over a few thousands of years and then they'll slowly dissipate out into space. So if you could come back and look at it again in 50 or 100,000 years, it would no longer be visible that the nebula material, uh, the hydrogen and all the other components of it, would slowly be uh, dissipating out into space. It would also lose its source of energy. 
As I said, that's the white dwarf star. It was the core of the star. It was what was producing energy. Key thing was was. It's not doing it anymore. It has no source of energy. The core of the sun is about 15 million degrees. So when this is first exposed, it's millions of degrees, extremely hot. But it's got no energy source. It's radiating that energy out into space. And as it does that over thousands and tens of thousands of years, it'll slowly get cooler and cooler and fainter and fainter. And eventually, it will not even have the energy to illuminate the nebula. So this would actually slow down, and you'd never even be able to see the nebula because there'd be no source of energy. Doesn't mean the material wouldn't be there, but you would not be able to see it. It would just be dark, be completely dark. You'd have to use other methods to try to be able to detect it. It would also get more and more diffuse as it expands further out into space and then becomes material for another star to form. So, question? Question? No? No? No. Alrighty. All right. Well, we will go to. Chapter 10 then, see what we can finish up on chapter 10 and then the last 50 minutes or so we'll do the second exam. So last time we were looking at the brightnesses of the stars, how bright the stars appear to be, how bright they really are. And what I was finishing up with was the problem in astronomy is that we don't know the distances. When we go out there and look at the stars, you just go out there, you can't really tell what's close and what's far away. You know that the moon is closer, but you can't just see it when you look at the sky. Everything looks the same. Stars are even more difficult. They all just look like little points of light. The only difference is how bright they appear to be. And what an observer might see is two stars that appear to be equally bright. That doesn't mean necessarily that the stars are similar or that they're really that bright. You could have a faint star very close to the observer, much closer. You could have an extremely bright star many times further away and it could just balance out that you actually happen to have the exact same uh, brightness, happen to have them about the same brightness. So we can't really tell just by looking at the stars, just by going out there and looking at a star and saying, wow, that's a bright star. It doesn't necessarily mean it's really a bright star, it's really bright intrinsically. It doesn't mean, it could mean that it's very close. It could mean that it's just a very bright star very far away. And we don't have a way to tell that directly. We'll be looking at some other ways to determine that here in a little bit. So, in terms of how we do, how we measure the magnitudes, how we measure the apparent brightnesses is called the magnitude scale. So, we have a set of ma a magnitudes, it's just a number assigned telling us the brightness of a star. And the range is sort of given up here. When this was first started, it was actually astronomers, some of the early Greek astronomers, Hipparchus was one. You had all these stars in the sky and you wanted to be able to catalog them, to group them. And the one thing that you could look at, they didn't have all the technology we have today, but the one thing you could see is how bright they appeared to be. So he created six classes of stars based on their brightness. How bright do these stars appear to be? So you had stars of the first magnitude were the brightest stars in the sky. Not all the same brightness, but the, the grouping of all the really bright stars in the sky, those were stars of the first magnitude. Second, third, 
fourth, fifth, and sixth, and these were the faintest stars that could be seen. Not the faintest stars that, the, that exist, but the faintest stars that you could see. We didn't have any telescopes, so whatever you could see with your naked eye, the faintest stars that you could see. So grouping them this way was just one way of organizing the stars. And that's carried over from the time of Hipparchus to today, and we still use, we still use this, scale, this general scale, except that now we've expanded on it. But one of the problems in it, and one of the things that easily can easily confuse people, is that it means that the smaller number means a brighter star. So a star with a magnitude of 2 compared to a star with a magnitude of 4, that one's brighter. The smaller number is the brighter star. So it's backwards. So this system is, this system is backwards. It makes sense when you think about it. You, when you think of stars of the first magnitude, those are the greatest stars or the brightest stars. But when we actually try to uh, work with the system, it ends up being backwards because the small numbers are, the smallest numbers represent the brightest stars. Now we've expanded on that, and that's kind of what's shown here. The naked eye limit through about first magnitude is just about this tiny region of what we see. There are actually things that are a lot brighter. There are stars that are brighter than first magnitude when we actually develop methods to be able to measure the magnitudes directly. So Sirius is actually magnitude negative 1.5. So it's even brighter than, than these because it's a much smaller number. Venus can be a negative 4 magnitude. The full moon, negative 12. The sun, negative 26.7. Brightest object we see in the sky, the sun will appear as a very negative magnitude, very small number, very bright object. And since we've been able to develop um, other methods to be able to look, telescopes, binoculars, we can actually see fainter objects. So we can go down fainter than what Hipparchus could see at 6th magnitude. We can see Barnard star, mentioned that one last time, that's that very quick moving star, relatively close to us, but it's a magnitude 9.5, way below the limit of what we can see with our naked eye. So even though it's a very close star, it's still not something you can see. You can barely see it through binoculars. You'd actually need a telescope to really be able to pick it out. And then fainter stars, what can you see with a 10-inch uh, telescope, a 1-meter telescope, a 4-meter telescope? and going down to the Hubble telescope, you can get down to about 30th magnitude. So the whole range now goes from about minus 26.7, that's the sun, down to about 30 plus magnitude, which is things that could be seen with things like Hubble Space Telescope or the very largest telescopes on Earth. Now the other thing that is a problem with the magnitude scale in terms of, terms of trying to use it is that it's not what we call a linear scale. Normally, if we look at temperatures, right, if you have 200 degrees and 400 degrees, right, this is twice as hot, right, this is half as hot, it makes sense. When you have a second magnitude and a fourth magnitude, it's not twice as hot, not twice as bright. So this star, even though it's going negative, it's okay, it's twice the number, but it's not twice as bright. It's actually many times more that. And in fact, each magnitude, a difference of magnitudes going from first to second magnitude is a factor of about two and a half times brighter. 
Why would we pick that out? Not particularly, that's just the way your eye happens to judge, to judge light. So your eye does not judge it in a linear scale like this where things that are twice as, uh, twice as much light look twice as bright. It does it a little bit differently. So that's really the way your eye works. So each magnitude is a factor of two and a half times brighter, meaning that every five magnitudes going from first to sixth, first to sixth magnitude would be 2.5 times 2.5, five times as we go through those, or comes out to just about 100 times brighter. So the first magnitude star, the brightest stars that you can see in the sky, are not six times brighter than the faintest stars you can see. They're about 100 times brighter. That means when you get down to those very faintest stars, you're talking about things that are 100. 100 every, every five magnitudes is a factor of 100. So you can be talking about things that are many millions of times fainter. And that's what it means by saying it's a logarithmic scale. That a change, the changes do not change equally. That if we double the magnitude, we don't double the brightness. We actually much more than double the brightness. Another thing that uses a scale like this would be the Richter scale. There are earthquakes. You know, there's a big difference between a magnitude 7.2 earthquake and a 7.5, and a 7.5 and a 7.8. It's not a little linear scale where you can just tell that you know a fourth magnitude earthquake and an eighth magnitude earthquake are you know twice as big. It's a lot more than that. As the numbers go up, you know, going up from when you're up in the higher numbers, going from an 8.1, 8.2, you're making a big, big change in how strong that earthquake was. It's a similar type scale that, to what is used here in terms of the magnitudes. So important things on it. First of all, it's backwards. Smaller numbers are brightest stars. And it's not an even ratio between them. It's a two and a half times per magnitude, a hundred times for five magnitudes between the brightnesses of the stars. All right, so temperatures. So some of the other things that we can determine about the stars are the temperature. Uh, start off very easily, we can just by looking at the color, we can get an idea of what the temperature is. Um, uh, hot, te hot stars are going to look a little blue. So this is Orion over here. Betelgeuse up to the upper left. Rigel down to the lower right hand side. If you take an image of it, Rigel and a number of the other stars in Orion do look quite blue. They're extremely hot, very high temperatures, two, three times hotter than the sun at the surface. Betelgeuse, looking very red, is a very cool star, about half the temperature of the sun. And if we look overall here at just a star field taken in color, we can see some rather bluish stars, stars with a bluish tinge to them scattered around from more or less blue, some that look a little bit white, and others that look very red. And in fact, some look a very deep red and are among the coolest stars. So I can just by looking at the stars give you an idea of what the temperatures are. You can tell me whether they're a hotter star or a cooler star just by looking at the color that they appear to exhibit. Hot star is going to look bluer. Cool star is going to look redder. And again, we related that to the, like a flame, looking at a flame. Candle flame, the hottest part of the flame down towards the base, it looks blue. That's where it's the hottest. As it expands outward, it gets cooler. That's actually the red portion. So the red corresponds to a much lower temperature than the blue stars. 
And you can actually see that if you go out and look at the stars, you can really you can notice that some of them are some of them do have a reddish tinge to them, and some of them do have a bluish tinge to them. So how does this happen? Well, here's a little table that shows some of the range of temperatures of stars, going from some of the coolest stars, such as Betelgeuse, at about 3,000 degrees, stars like the Sun at about 6,000, uh, Vega and Sirius at about 10,000 up to some of the very hottest stars at about 30,000 degrees or five times hotter than the sun. And how we see that is based on the radiation that they emit. And this goes back a couple chapters we talked about in chapter two was that we saw the black body curve, the black body radiation that was being emitted by them. And what we had was that if you looked you got the similar shape of curve but the peak of it depended on the temperature. So a very cool star, that peak was off in the infrared. A very hot star, that peak was out in the ultraviolet. And what you might see here in the visible portion of the spectrum was that you might see a star like this very cool one at 3,000 degrees is emitting some amount of energy in the yellowish to redder range is much higher. The amount of energy it's emitting in the blue has dropped off significantly. So if you look at that star, it's going to tend to look red. It's, not a, not, not, it's emitting all, all the wavelengths of light, it's emitting the whole spectrum, but it's emitting a lot more red light than it is blue light. So when we look at it, it's going to appear red. A star somewhere in the middle is going to be emitting almost all the colors across the electromagnetic spectrum at the same time. So across the visible wavelengths, all about the same. And that'll even out and give it about a whitish color. So some of the middle temperature stars, a uh, little bit hotter than the sun here, will actually look white. An even hotter star here would have less light being emitted in the red, more light emitted, being emitted in the blue and violet, and would actually look a bluish color. So you'll see it when it, look, when it tends to get towards those extremes. You'll see the extremes on a cool star. It'll definitely look very red. You're emitting a lot more red light than you are blue light. And you'll see the extremes when you get to a very hot star, you're emitting more blue light than you are red light, and that's what you're going to see. So we can actually, by measuring two wavelengths, we can actually determine the temperature of a star very precisely. So not just looking at the star and saying, oh, it looks red, it must be a cool star. It looks blue, it must be a hot star. But if I measure how bright the star is in this yellow band, and I measure how bright the star is in this blue band, and I compare those two, actually get numbers for them, I can then tell you exactly what the temperature of that star is. So we have a certain difference here corresponds to a temperature of 3,150 degrees, say. Okay? A certain difference here in the brightness in this band, if we measure how bright the star appears in just a filter of that wavelength, just a filter of that wavelength, we can then tell you that that's a star that's, you know, 32,000 degrees or 28,000 degrees, depending on what that difference is. So you can then measure it, not just say it's hot or cool, but actually making measurements to be able to tell you what the temperature is of that star. Now, the black body curves tell us a little bit. They do tell us about the temperatures. But they don't, tell us a lot of, they don't tell us a lot about the star. We really, in order to see the star, in order to understand it and learn more about it, we actually have to look at the spectrum. So we want to break it up into a spectrum and look at all the colors in more detail. 
And that's where we really get to learn about the star. And stars are classified by their spectra and how their spectra look. And they're classified in uh, seven primary categories as given by the letters here. O's, B, A, nope, F, A, F, G, K, M. So the stars are classified based on how their spectra look and have been assigned these letters. Makes a lot of sense, right? Why didn't we just go A, B, C, D, E, F, G? Well, actually they did. When it was first classified, they were classified in letters A through M. But we didn't have a physical understanding of what was going on. It was only based on how the spectra appeared. And in fact, some of the spectra with the strongest hydrogen lines, the strongest lines of hydrogen, were those that were classified as A's. And then as the hydrogen lines got weaker, we went down through B's and C's and D's and E's and F's and G's and so on, down through into the M's and the O's. Once we figured out what was really happening there, what this meant, that there was really a physical, under, physical meaning re, below it, not just how the stars, how the spectra happened to look, which is how the classification was first done. Oh, these all spectra all look the same. They real, have a whole real strong hydrogen lines. They're classified as A's. Here's the next set. They're a little bit weaker. They're classified as B's, and then so on. Well, you can see some of the letters managed to disappear. Some of the classes got merged in with each other, and they got rearranged. Because what we found is after studying this and trying to figure out the physical basis behind it is that this is this depends on the temperature. So we're actually not just classifying stars based on the appearance, but we're classifying stars based on how hot they are. With the temperature increasing, the hottest here, O stars being the hottest stars, the bluish looking stars, M stars, being the coolest of the stars. So that's why it now is this odd pattern OBAFGKM that has been rearranged to actually allow that the O stars are the hottest, then the B's, A's, F's, G's, K's, and the M's. Our sun fits in right here. Our sun is actually a G class star. So in terms of temperatures, it's on the cooler, it's on the cooler end of the stars. But that's where our sun, our sun fits in right in there. But originally it was a classification of A through whatever, wherever it ended up, through M's and O's. Um, and eventually they were just put together. Certain classes, you know, the C's and D's got uh, wound back in with some of the other classes as they were similar. And they got rearranged to actually show that it was a temperature sequence. And when we look at these, here's an example of what we see. So when we look at the spectra, we can see that there are some differences between them. This is one spectrum of each general class of going from an A-O star, very, very hot star at 30,000 degrees, down through an M star at about 3,000 degrees. And the hydrogen lines are going to be labeled prominently. There's a hydrogen line way off to the red in there, and then the other ones are kind of buried, uh, buried within the blues down here. But A is going to be the one with some of the strongest hydrogen lines. But 
you also see that there was a difference. That you could, if you were just looking at a whole bunch of these, you could catalog and group them together because there are similarities between them and there are some general slow changes that occur between the different spectral types. Lines will get, certain lines that are visible here will get stronger and stronger and stronger and then will begin to get weaker again and disappear. So lines will only be visible for a very uh, narrow range of temperatures when they are there, when they're easiest to see. Doesn't mean that the element isn't there. For example, you look at this, you know, F star which has lots of lines of iron and oxygen and sodium magnesium. Well, they're there in all these other stars as well. They're just not at the right temperature to glow. You've got to heat those, those up to exactly the right temperature in order to be able to see them. So you have to have them emitting just that exact amount of energy. So there's a certain amount of energy that is needed to excite those atoms and cause them to emit or to absorb the radiation of a specific wavelength. But we see the pattern. We see that they get much more complex. An M star has an extremely complicated spectrum. An O star, a B star, even into the A stars have relatively simple spectra. Much easier to find the specific lines. They get more and more complicated as you get to cooler and cooler stars as many of the elements start to become excited at those lower temperatures and actually especially down at the coolest ones where molecules begin to form. If you remember when we looked at the molecule, we looked at the spectra, that mo- the one I gave you of the molecule was really bad, right? Now, the one I showed you was the water one, which was just a mess, I think, or the water, it wasn't the water, it was the air, the air one that was just completely, I mean, you've got those molecules of hydrogen and oxygen and they're just all over the place. So you've got almost a continuous spectrum. They get much more complicated when you can actually form those. In a higher temperature star, you don't have to worry about that. Not because you don't have any hydrogen or uh, or nitrogen or any other atoms, but because molecules can't form. If you had a temperature at 30,000 degrees, everything's rushing around so quickly that any molecules that form would be quickly torn apart. So here's what you might see in some of the spectral lines. This is a table from the textbook. So for an O star with a relatively hot temperature of about 30,000 degrees, you're going to see very weak hydrogen lines you're going to see very strong ionized helium lines. Ionized helium. That means you've got a helium atom, two protons, two neutrons at the core, with one electron orbiting around it. So ionized atom just means that one of the electrons has been taken away. Telling it's a very high temperature. It takes a lot of energy to remove that electron and keep it away from a helium atom. So very high temperature is needed to see ionized helium. You don't see that in any of the other stars. You need these extremely high temperatures in order to be able to see that. You'll see heavy elements. Again, pretty much everything beyond hydrogen and helium. You'll see them, but not just their neutral forms, right? Carbon would be six electrons, six protons. But you'd see it ionized. You'd see multiple of those electrons taken away. So things that indicate a very high temperature. Hydrogen is faint. Why is the hydrogen so faint? Because the temperature is too high. Temperature is too high to excite hydrogen and it's actually stripped hydrogen of its atom. If you take hydrogen, electron off a hydrogen atom, you've got a proton, right? Proton all by itself doesn't have any electrons to jump between the energy levels that we looked at back in chapter two. So you don't have those those electrons to jump between the energy levels. Ionized hydrogen can't give you off any lines. 
as you get to a little bit cooler stars, you'll note that helium begins to become a little bit stronger in these stars. That's neutral helium. So now it's cooler. It's not ionized. It's got all of its electrons. And you begin to see the helium lines in these. But again, helium disappears when you get down to these cooler stars. There's not enough energy to excite it. Helium is a very, very stable element. It takes a lot of energy to push those electrons into higher orbits. Hydrogen lines start from faint, get very strong here, strongest at the A-type stars, and then begin to drop down again. And the hydrogen, by the time you get to a, a sun star, they're relatively faint. And the cooler stars, they're even fainter. Again, it's telling us the temperatures are too cool. There's not enough energy to push the hydrogen, the electrons, into a higher energy state. So hydrogen gets faint on both ends for two different reasons. On this side, it's just not enough energy to be able to excite the hydrogen, to cause it to absorb the radiation that's needed. On this side, the hydrogen's overly excited. You've stripped all the electron, the electron off of it, and there's nothing left to do any absorbing. All it is is a proton, which can't absorb anything. Sizes of stars. Can we measure the size of a star? We can certainly measure the size of the sun. That's one we can see a disk of. There are a few other stars that we can actually see with a very large telescope that we can actually see as a disk star. You know, very tiny, tiny blob there. We can actually measure out to contours on it and see how big this star is. This is Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is an incredibly large star. Uh, many times the size of our sun, if you put it in the center of the solar system, you know, we'd be inside it. That's how big it is. It would not just you know, be 10 times bigger than the sun, but it would be many, many times bigger than the sun, out to swamping the entire Earth orbit. So extremely large star, relatively close, hundreds of light years, many hundreds of light years away, but relatively close. So it's one of the few we can actually get a size of directly. Otherwise, it is very difficult to get sizes. Most stars, the vast majority of them, actually just still look like a point of light, even through the most powerful telescopes. So to get sizes of stars, we have to use alternative methods. There have to be other ways that we can use to indirectly determine how big a star actually is. And one way we can do that to sort of estimate is the nice little equation here that we can calculate uh, the stars, or the brightness of a star. And really what it says is that a luminosity of a star uh, depends on, which is the little uh, upside down, or little Greek letter alpha, the radius of the star to the second power multiplied by the temperature to the fourth power. No, you won't have to use it on an exam. I might have a homework question that has, you, that has you look at this, though. And what it really says is that if you know how bright a star is, and you know how luminous it is, you can then get an idea of how big it is. So a star can be um, very, very cool, but extremely bright. And in fact, so bright, like Betelgeuse, Betelgeuse is an extremely cool star. So extremely cool is going to be a small number for temperature. Small number raised to the fourth power is still going to be relatively small. And, but its luminosity is so many times brighter than the sun's that it overwhelms that. And it actually has to have a tremendous size in order to emit that kind of radiation. 
We can look at a similar thing with the white dwarf star we looked at on the picture of the day today. The temperature, extremely hot, tens of thousands of degrees, 100,000 degrees, extremely hot temperatures. So very big numbers here means it should be really bright. They're not. They're not very bright, meaning that the size has to be relatively small. So in terms of you know, thinking about it in terms of exams, I want you to have some kind of idea of how things vary. That if, you're, if you know two of these, you can sort of work out how the other one's going to change. I'm not asking you to do specific numbers on it. So I won't give you numbers for them and say how many times brighter in this, how many times smaller is it. You don't have to do that kind of calculation. But you should if we know that a star is you know, twice as bright as the sun and the same temperature of the sun, say we have a star that's exactly the same temperature. Then this doesn't matter but it's many times brighter than the sun, then it has to be a lot bigger. So you can use things like that to try to be able to understand the sizes of the stars. And that's how we actually determine how big a star is in most cases. And we have classified into dwarf stars, which are really like the sun. The sun is classified as a dwarf star. It's a relatively small star. There are giant stars, much bigger than the sun, but maybe oh, 10 to 100 times larger than the sun. And then there are supergiant stars. The biggest, some of the biggest stars, which are uh, more than 100 times larger than the sun. This is where Betelgeuse fits in. Betelgeuse would be a supergiant star. Again, if you put it in the solar system, it would swamp out. It would wipe out the nearest, the planets closest to the sun. Not just Mercury or Venus, but including out to the orbit of Earth, and would completely wipe that out. So. We can work, we can use this kind of information knowing that there's a relationship between the luminosity, the radius, and the temperature. We can use that because we can measure the temperatures. That's an easy number to get. We're going to learn soon that we can actually get an idea of the luminosity. There are some ways to determine the brightnesses of the stars. And that allows us to calculate the size, how big these stars really are. And as we've done that, we've begun to learn that there are a lot of dwarf stars, much like the sun, or even a little bit smaller. There are giant stars uh, several times the size of the sun. And there are supergiant stars that are much, much larger. And you'll sometimes see classified even hypergiant stars, even bigger than the supergiant stars. So there's a big range in terms of the sizes of a star from things the size of a city. There are stars that are that tiny. We haven't gotten to those yet, but the white dwarf star was the size of the Earth. There's actually something more compact than that. If you can imagine it, you've crushed all the um, space between the atoms out? Well, you can also squish out all the space within an atom. The gravity gets intense enough, you can squeeze all those electrons into the atom and create what's called a neutron star. It's like a gigant atomic nucleus. So if you get rid of all the space in the sun, you can condense that down to a ball that's about 10 kilometers in size. All the space between the atoms, all the space within the atoms, if you can get rid of all that empty space, last time we did how empty the solar system was, right? Now this is how, empty is how empty is the atom. There's nothing there. An atom is almost completely empty space. 
So if you can get rid of all that space, you can take the whole matter that's in the sun and condense it down to something about six miles. Well, say about six miles in size. Uh, did I? And the stars vary very widely in size. There are incredible, incredibly big ones, Antares here. That's the bright star in the constellation of Scorpius, 500 times the radius of the sun. If you put that one at the center of the solar system, that's what's shown here. There's where the Earth would be. Way inside this, way inside this star. Mars would be here. Jupiter would still be out here. Jupiter would still be well out here. So the outer planets would still be there. But the inner ones would all be, would all be completely engulfed by this star if we were to be able to push it at the center of the solar system. There are other stars, Aldebaran and Capella, which would be classified as giant stars, several times the size of the sun. Uh, when you get down to Spica, Sirius, these are close. This one's twice the size of the sun. Yes, it's a little bit bigger, but it would still be classified as a dwarf star. There's our sun. To scale with these, there's our sun. In order to look at anything smaller, let's look at it, let's blow up the sun a little bit. And we can compare things to the sun. There's how big Jupiter is. Barnard star, one of the very cool, one of the smallest stars, is about 20% the size of the sun, about twice the size of Jupiter. Proxima Centauri is actually a little bit smaller than Jupiter. More massive, significantly more mass, so it's actually a star, not a planet like Jupiter, but is actually smaller in size. Sirius B is one of those white dwarf stars we saw, uh, that I mentioned at the beginning of class today. And it's about one one-hundredth the size of the sun. So getting down to about the size of the Earth. So a big variation in the sizes that we see. And in fact, let me, I think this is, yep, let me end here for right now. I've got one video clip here I wanted to show on looking at some of these uh, star sizes. So let's see, let me get this up and play it. And we'll look at some of the different sizes and it's going to start with uh, some of the different objects and really looking through the stars to try to give you an idea of the different sizes here. So starting off with some big object, how about our moon? A relatively large object, not as big as the Earth. But then as we work through the solar system, there's Mercury to scale, Mars. Our moon is looking smaller and smaller, in fact disappearing off the edge there. Venus, the Earth, almost the same size. There we are. Big jump, jump from the Earth to Neptune. There's our little moon still out there. It's starting to look very tiny now. Saturn, Uranus and Neptune are about the same size. Jupiter, and then go from Jupiter to the Sun. Well, our little moon is just about gone there now. Some of the brighter stars, Sirius, about twice the size of the Sun. Pollux, one of the orange giants, has one of the stars in Gemini. Arcturus. Our sun's starting to look like not much of anything. We're getting up just to the red giants, Aldebaran. Rigel in Orion. Blue hypergiant, a pistol star. Antares A, that's the one in Scorpius. That would one that would go out and cover the orbit of Mars. It's still not the biggest. Our little sun isn't even visible there. Red hypergiant, largest known star. So by comparison, our moon long since disappeared. and give you an idea of how big this is. There's our Earth to scale. Diameter of about 2.8 billion kilometers. 
And if you would imagine a plane traveling around the surface of that star at about 900 kilometers per hour, how long is it going to take you to make an orbit? A little over a thousand years to make one orbit around that. Now, traveling in a reasonably fast airplane, it's going to take you a thousand years to get around that. So, cute little video there just really kind of gives you an idea of, you know, how big things are, and that's just among what we can see. So, we're not talking about, that's not all this, that stars in our galaxy, and in fact, very close to our galaxy. Very close stars in our galaxy. So. So, gives you a little bit better than just looking at some of the pictures there. I think that gives you a little bit better view of what the, of what the different sizes are of the stars out there. Alright, back to here. So it gives you a little bit better idea of how big some of those stars are and how tiny our sun is. You know, we think, tend to think of the sun as a large star, star or a middle star. It's really not. Our sun is really a very small star by comparison to many of these others. Now, one of the important diagrams that we look at is this Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, which I'm going to start on here. And that has, it's a plot where you look at two numbers, two things that tell us about a star. If we look at the surface temperature, how hot the star is, that's something we can measure relatively easy. And we look at the luminosity, how bright the star is. Recall, luminosity is not the magnitude. That's not how bright it is when you go out and look at it in the sky. That's how bright it truly is. How much energy is it really emitting so that you can truly compare these stars. So that requires a knowledge of the distance. And if we plot the NHR diagram for a few stars, in fact a lot of the ones we've just been looking at, you've got a star like the Sun here, Alpha Centauri is very similar. A little bit hotter, a little bit brighter than the Sun, but very close. There are some stars that are way up here at cool temperatures, but very, very bright. There are some hot stars that are very bright, such as Spica and Rigel. There are also some hot stars that are very faint, like Sirius B, one of the white dwarf stars. And there are some cool stars that are relatively faint. So, looks like there's a big mixture. But what we've done here is we haven't taken a uniform sample. These are just some of the prominent star names, uh, not really chosen at random. They seem to spread all over there. If you really take a good sample of stars, you begin to see patterns that show up. That there's a relationship between the temperature, how hot a star is, and how bright it is. And there are actually different areas of this diagram where we'll start to see lots of stars. And there are areas of it where we'll see hardly any stars. So if we start to put, uh, take the 80 closest stars to us. So they're just the closest stars to the sun. So. We have that, we plot them in the same, same thing. We're plotting the temperature here. Do note that the temperature is measured backwards, just to, just to confuse people, right? No, that's actually done by spectral classification, which is one of the early ways it was done. And the O stars were done first, which are, of course, the hottest temperature. So temperature, as you're going this way, actually gets less. Luminosity does get larger as you go up. So brighter stars are towards the top, but hotter stars are towards the left, not towards the right. But if we plot all those stars here, that makes our sun look like a relatively bright star. Here's our sun. There's one, two, three, four stars that are actually brighter than our sun, that are hotter and brighter than our sun. So not a whole lot. Among the closest stars to us, the sun's one of the more prominent ones, one of the bigger and more prominent. There's lots of stars down here in the cooler part. 
much cooler stars, much fainter stars. But we start to see what's called the main sequence, which is this shaded line. We'll fill it up to the top later, but where most of the stars seem to form. So a lot of stars, they fall along this sequence from very cool stars that are very faint up to very hot stars that are very bright. So there is a pattern there. You don't see a lot of stars up to the upper right hand side. There are some. We'll talk about those in a little bit. You don't, you don't see many to the lower left hand side. Yeah, there's a few in the white dwarf region here, but those are a special type of star. Those are white dwarfs. Those are collapsed dead stars. You just don't get stars forming randomly all over this diagram. So there is a pattern. There's actually some understanding behind this of how a star actually works. And what you're going to see not only in this chapter, but in chapter 11 and in chapter 12 and in chapter 13 especially, those three chapters, we're going to see this and use this diagram as a way of understanding how stars change throughout their lives. So different areas, again, most of the stars form in the main sequence region. That's where our sun is, right in the middle of the main sequence here. Most of the stars are present there. There are some very hot stars that are very faint, the white dwarfs, very compact stars. Among the nearest ones we don't see any, but there could also be very large stars that would be out over here. None of those are very close to us, but there could be stars that are giant stars or supergiant stars which would be way off towards the upper left hand, upper right hand side of this diagram. So number of different types of stars that we can see, but there are patterns that begin to develop when we plot them on a diagram like this. Now if we look at it differently, instead of taking the hundred or so nearest stars, let's look at the hundred or so brightest stars. These are the ones you go out and see at night, right? You go out and star, look at night, look up at the sky. These are the stars that you're seeing. And we see a similar pattern. You don't see any of these. None of those uh, real cool stars are among the brightest ones that we looked at last time. There's our sun, Alpha Centauri, Procyon, Sirius, a few of them that match up from what we saw before. But we're now filling in the upper portion of the main sequence. So we're starting to see that, there, that the stars do extend all the way up there and that there are some that form in the upper right hand region in what is called the red giant region. Red giant region because they're large stars. They're big. As you go further up towards this upper right hand side you get bigger and bigger stars. And they're red because they're relatively cool temperatures. So you form stars like Antares, which was one of the brightest stars that we see. One of the brightest, one of the largest stars that we looked at. That's way up in the upper right hand side here, one of the very largest, one of the larger stars. Betelgeuse, a relatively big star as well. Again, many more than 100 to 100 times the size of our sun. And there's other ones that are not quite as big that are maybe only 10 times the size of the sun, but all in the red giant slash supergiant region up here in this part of the HR diagram. So most of the stars will fall along this main sequence. If we mapped all, put those two together, we'd see most of our stars fall right along this main sequence with some up here, a few of them up here. We're overpopulating this right now because we're looking at the brightest stars and these tend to be very big, very bright stars so they stand out. We can see them at even large distances. You notice that there's no white dwarfs there. There's no white dwarf that is close enough to us to be among the brightest stars. Even the very closest ones are still incredibly faint and would not be among the brightest stars that we see in the sky. But this tells us that really 
the bright stars that we see in the sky are because they're really bright. Not just bright looking at them. Yes, right? That makes sense. They're bright stars because they're bright. They're intrinsically bright. They're really putting out a lot of energy. They're not just close. So when we see the brightest stars in the sky, when you go out there and look at stars at night, you're seeing some of the brightest and actually some very distant stars. Nothing very close to us. If you note, the only ones that overlapped were what? We had Alpha Centauri was on the other one, uh, Procyon, uh, Sirius, and maybe that's maybe Vega. Was, there's another couple that were up there. Only a couple that were up there. So among the closest stars, there's only a few that are among the brightest stars in the sky. Most of the close stars to us really look very faint. In fact, many of those ones here that were very close are not visible without a telescope. All right. So now put it all together. Let's look at 20,000 stars. Let's really get a lot of stars that we've been able to determine things accurately for. And we find that there's the main sequence. So going from very cool stars, very faint, up towards very hot stars that are very bright. There's the main sequence, our sun right about there in the middle. And we see a lot of stars up in the red giant region. There's a few that are scattered around in other parts. But for the most part, when you're looking at 20,000 stars here, the vast majority of the stars, about 90% are on the main sequence. About 10% are in the red giant region. That's 100%. We're done, right? Well, rounding errors will put some down here in the white dwarf region and some up in these other little sections too. But really, about 90% of the stars are there. About another 10% are there. And the other little rounding areas account for all these other stars that are not quite on those two. So vast majority of the stars are on the main sequence. And that is partially, we'll learn that when we talk about the evolution of stars, is because that's where they spend most of their lives. The sun will spend 90% of its lifetime on the main sequence. So when we take a snapshot of any other star as to where it happens to be, you know, we only get to see it in one stage. We don't get to watch them as they change. The sun will eventually become a red giant. We're not going to be around to see it in 5 billion years. But it will eventually happen. There will be eventually a time 5 billion years, years from now where a distant astronomer would map out the sun and say, well, it's up in here somewhere. It's a real big star. We don't get to see them change. We only get a snapshot of their life. So if we take that image of the star, we might happen to see it on the main sequence. Got about a 90% chance if that's where it's spending most of its life. We've got about a 10% chance of seeing it here in the red giant region. We've got a tiny fraction of a percent of seeing our picture of the day. Tiny, tiny fraction. The uh, planetary nebula. That phase lasts you know, 50 to 100,000 years. A long time, right? Long time for us. But in terms of 10 billion year lifetime of the sun, if you're just taking a section of it at a random instant, your odds of getting that image of it at that random instant in that lifetime is very, very small. So lots and lots of stars will go through that planetary nebula phase. It's only those occasional few that we happen to have caught as we are living through them that they happen to be going through that phase at this moment. All right, so working on the distance scale and trying to extend that a little bit. Um, there's a new method to determine distances that we're going to come up with. And we're going to use the HR diagram. And what I'm going to do on uh, tomorrow, for Thursday, is go back and I'm going to redo the HR diagram. So I've sort of given you a basic overview of it here. I'm going to go through and actually you know, create an HR diagram on the board and go through and show you exactly how to, 
how we go about that and how we use that. So you're going to see that in a little bit more detail just because you see it so much in this in the rest of this class and especially in the next few chapters. But we have a way to measure another way to measure distances that uses the HR diagram. And that is called a spectroscopic parallax. It has nothing to do with parallax except that it's a distance measurement. Parallax had to do with that shifting angle as things looked from two different points of view. That's not what you're seeing here at all. So you're not seeing that. All you're seeing is that it uses spectroscopy, splitting the light up into its component colors, as a way to determine the distance to a star. So what you do is, step one is you measure the star's apparent magnitude. That's easy. Remember, that's how you go out at night and look at it. That's how bright it, it, it appears to be. So we measure the apparent magnitude. We take a spectrum of it. We determine what spectral class it is. Is it an A star? Is it an F star? What classification is it? Once we know the classification, we can then use that to estimate how bright it is. And I'm going to go back here. I'll be back here in one second. If we know the spectral classification, that it's a G star, we know roughly that it's about the brightness of the sun. If it's a K star, it's going to be a little bit fainter, so I can get an estimate of the luminosity. What is done is these are split up into finer grids than this, and that you don't just have you know, B stars, you have a B0, a B1, down to a B9, before you get to the A0 stars. So actually within here, you don't just have Bs, but you have a set of Bs uh, subdivided one, 0 through 9. So even getting it in a little bit more detail when you do the classification, and that helps in terms of estimating those luminosities. So you're breaking it down right on the HR diagram, find out exactly what the spectral class is, if it's a star like the sun, if it's a G, sun is a G2, actually. So sun is classified as a G2 star. If you find another star that's classified as a G2, then you can use that to determine that it's as bright as the sun. If it's further down the main sequence, you know it's going to be a little bit fainter. If it's further up, you know it's going to be a little bit brighter. So once you determine the spectral class, it gives you a way of getting the luminosity. If you know the luminosity, luminosity, how bright it really is, how much energy it's putting out, and we know the apparent magnitude, how bright it appears to be, we can then figure out what its distance is. Because this is how bright it really is, how much energy it's putting out, but we see it as so bright. We can then do a calculation. You don't have to worry about that here. Again, not going to be an exam question or anything. But you can use that to then determine the distances, figure out what the distance is. So it's an indirect way of getting the distances because you have to have the HR diagram figured out first. And in order to get luminosities on the HR diagram, you've got to be able to measure the distances to some of the stars. So this depends on the method of parallax as well in terms of a way of calibrating it, saying, okay, here's where the stars actually fit in. Here's what it means to be, go back again, here's what it means, here how bright, how do we know how luminous we know how luminous the sun is, but how do we know how luminous this star is? Well, in order to do that, we have to have measured distances to some of these in order to figure out what this luminosity scale actually is. So we've got to get some of the distances first, but once we do that, once we get some of them and we've got a real good HR diagram from the very coolest to the very hottest stars, we can then use that to find the distances. 
Again, we get, we get the apparent magnitude. Love measuring that. Real easy. You just take, a, take the telescope and collect how much light is coming from the star each second. Measure the apparent magnitude. Measure the spectral class. Relatively easy to do. Use the spectral class to get the luminosity. Once you have the luminosity, you've got the luminosity and the apparent magnitude. You can tell. You know how bright it should be. You know how bright it is, appears to be. You can use that to estimate the distances and determine the distances. So this will expand our distance scale a little bit as we start here. If we're starting here at Earth trying to measure things further and further away, well, we can use radar. That doesn't work when you get too far away, but that works within about an astronomical unit of the Earth. So if we want a radar to measure distances to the moon, that works real good. If we want to measure the distance to Mars, works pretty good. Venus works pretty good. But anything about over an astronomical unit away, so within just our part of the solar system, it gets too far away. It gets too far away and the signal drops too, too rapidly. So you'd never be able to use this to measure the distance to a star. The only direct method of measuring a distance to a star is the parallax. So parallax again was the shifting, looking at one side of the Earth's orbit, waiting six months, taking more images of the sky, and then seeing that angle. That works out to about 200 parsecs, about 600 light years. So out to a distance of about 600 light years we can measure parallax. That's not very far. Okay? That's just a little local part of our galaxy where we can measure distances very accurately. But it helps because at least we can get some of it. At least we get some of the measurements. Once we get beyond that, we have to start looking for other methods. And this uh, distance scale will extend. We'll look at a number of other things up here as we go through the next few chapters. But spectroscopic parallax is the next thing that works. That works pretty much within our galaxy up to about 10,000 parsecs, about 30,000 light years. Galaxy is about 75 to 100,000 light years. So we're getting out to about a third of our galaxy able to measure distances. It works really well as long as you have the star is bright enough to be able to see, to be able to detect the individual star, and to be able to get enough light to get a spectrum. You've got to be able to get the spectrum in order to determine the temperatures and the spectral class and then the luminosities. So you have to be able to get a, a classification on it, and you have to have enough light to be able to see it. So once you get out to about 30-some thousand light years, that starts to get harder and harder. But that still gets us a well in the way of measuring distances to our own galaxy. Again, when we get to the end of the class, we've got to look at measuring, th measuring galaxies that are um, billions of light years away. Not even close with any of these. You're not even going to come close. There's no way you'll ever measure a parallax. There's no way you could ever measure a spectroscopic parallax when you get out to those tremendous distances. So there are other methods that we'll find that we can use as well. Now, when we looked at these, we also saw, when we looked at the HR diagram, we saw that there were a range. There were a bunch of stars up there in the uh, upper right hand side, the red giant stars. So there are actually stars, much like the sun, here that are actually further up above the main sequence. That can cause a problem in terms of trying to measure the distances. Because if we're doing it just one way, we're just measuring the spectrum of the star and saying, oh, it's a G2 star, it's just like the sun, it's just as bright as the sun. Okay? That works as long as that star is really on the main sequence. 
if that star is not on the main sequence, if that star was really a giant star up here in class 3 or a supergiant star in class 1, then that's not going to work. So we need to be able to define, to find a difference between those, to find some way that we can measure the spectral class and not just say it's a G2 star, but actually say it's a G2 star on the main sequence, which would be a G2 and it's classified by a Roman numeral V, Roman numeral 5, as a main sequence star. So this would be the Sun. But you could also have a G2 Roman numeral 3 star. This would be same temperature as the Sun. This says the temperature is the same. This is measuring the luminosity. The bigger the number, the smaller the luminosity. So a 5 is a very low luminosity. A 1 would be a supergiant among the largest stars. And the one in the middle would be a giant star. So we need a way to be able to distinguish that and a way to measure, take the spectrum of the star and to be able to tell, well, is it a G2, but is it a 1? Is it a 3? Is it a 5? Is it something in between? Uh, these are the primary three that are used, this, the main sequence or dwarf star, the giant and the supergiant. You'll see classified up there, there's also uh, bright giants which are kind of in between the giants and the supergiants. There's also subgiants which are in between the main sequence stars and the giants. Most of the stars tend to fall in either, again, vast majority are main sequence, the rest are red giants or red supergiants. There's only the occasional stars that do not fall into those classes. But one way we can measure that is, remember we're looking at the spectrum, we're spreading things out into the colors and we can look at a spectrum digitally like this and we can look at the spectral lines. And one of the things that we can see is how wide the spectral lines are. These are both the same type of star. These are both K-type stars. The spectral line pattern is the same, right? Small line, big line, small and big. There's this line here and this line here. Everything matches up. The lines match up exactly. The difference is how wide they are, how spread, spread out they are. And in a supergiant star, those lines are going to be very, very, very narrow because the atmosphere is so diffuse, so spread out, that there's not a lot of particles in it. So there's not a lot of particles bumping up against each other to spread out the lines. There's not a lot of internal motion within that star. When you get to a, K, a dwarf star or a main sequence star, it's a much denser atmosphere. Particles are constantly bumping up and against each other and that causes the spectral lines to be spread out a little bit more. So one way we have to determine is where it falls not only this direction, but we also have to find out where it determines this direction because otherwise we're going to vastly um, confuse our distances because we're going to be saying this really bright star is the brightness of the Sun. And that's going to throw off our distance calculation. So here's an example of what you might see just in terms of comparing some of these stars. We can uh, get a distinguishment between the main sequence stars and the giants and supergiants. Stars are all about the same temperature from about 4300 degrees to about 4900 degrees. All in the K class or classified as a K2 star. And the luminosities though vary wildly. A K2 main sequence star on the main sequence be a little bit smaller than the Sun and much, much fainter than the Sun. 
a red giant star would be, you know, 20 times the size of the sun, maybe 100 times as bright. The supergiant, more than 100 times the size of the sun and 4,000 times as bright. So it makes a big difference if we're estimating a star, if we're determining just that it's a K2, if we don't get this second dimension to the spectral classification, it's going to throw off all of our calculations. So to throw off calculations of distance. So it's very important when we were able to determine that there were really, uh, the classes were not just one dimensional, not just G2, but you need the second dimension of the classification as well. All right, let's see. Let me get started on masses and then I will finish this up and do the HR diagram stuff tomorrow. Um, one thing that we can look at, one way of being able to determine masses of stars, not something we can get very easily, is by using gravity. So we can actually use um, the gravity in terms of what we call a binary star. Stars that are orbit in pairs or more. But start off with just binary stars where two stars are orbiting around each other. And if we have that, there's several different classes we can see. We could have visual binaries. Okay, visual binaries, that's the upper, that's the top one. We can see it. We sit there and we look at the star and we can look at it through a telescope and we can see here's one star and we can map out this other star. Here it was in 1948. We can actually watch it over a period of years slowly orbit around the other star. So we can physically see it. That's a drawing. Here's an actual image where you could see a star in the second star and watch as it actually orbits around the other. So that's one way to be able to see it. That requires the stars be relatively widely separated and close. If they get too far away, we can't distinguish between the two stars. You can imagine, you see how close those stars are in that image. If you were to take that uh, group of stars twice as far away, it'd be almost impossible to be able to see. The second type is the spectroscopic binary. This is the most common because all you need to do here is to see the spectrum. And you can actually see the spectrum and you can see lines shifting. So you can observe the star that it's orbiting just by looking at one one spectrum of it. So you take a spectrum of the star, they're too close together to be able to see them as two individual stars. You can't see them like you do in the first image up there. So you see it only as one star, but you see this one star is sometimes moving towards us and sometimes moving away. And that gives us a sign as we watch it with that pattern, as we look at it here at one point, it shifted well towards the red, it's moving away from us. Here it shifted well towards the blue, moving towards us. And we can then observe, and by observing the pattern of that shift and watching it change over time, as it will come into the middle and go to the other side, as you watch as it moves, you can determine the parameters of that star. So you can determine how fast it is orbiting. The final type is the eclipsing binary. Like a spectroscopic binary, you can't separate the two stars. But you look at the brightness, and if you watch the brightness, you'll see that it dips at times. <laughs> Bless you. So you'll see going from a very bright star here, 
getting the entire intensity of the stars as you dip in here when one star blocks out part of the light from, an, from the other, the star will get fainter. And in fact can get noticeably fainter. Now this is rare just because you have to have everything lined up perfectly. Because you have to have everything lined up exactly in order to be able to see it. Remember how hard it is to get an eclipse, right? You don't get an eclipse every month because sometimes the sun and the moon are a little bit above or below. Well, in order to see that, in order to see the eclipsing binary, you have to be looking down on one star, another star orbiting it. You have to be looking almost precisely edge on. Imagine it as a piece of paper. Draw it on a piece of paper and look at that paper edge on. If you tilt it a tiny bit one way or a tiny bit the other way, the stars are never going to eclipse each other. So you're only going to see these in rare occasions where everything is perfectly lined up. But there is one star called Algol which is actually an eclipsing binary where you can see the brightness changes. So it's actually known uh, to the ancients even as it's called the demon star because nothing was supposed to change in the heavens but this did. So it actually changed in its brightness. Um, let me see. I'm going to go ahead and stop there because I've got a little bit more on masses. I'll come back and finish up here tomorrow and then we'll finish up the rest of chapter 10. So you've got some time for your exam. Any questions? Questions?